And I'm going to do this. I call this at the heading King James Bible FAQ, right? This is just um, some frequently asked questions you may get about the Bible issue. So I tried to compile some of them, and not, it's not exhaustive. We're going to start in Job chapter 19. If you want to turn to Job chapter 19, verse 23. You need one? Which one do you need? The, the sheets? Sorry. Uh, right, right this one. That's okay. Job chapter 19, verse 23. Um, first question, I have seven questions, all right? That's why you see seven things on your notes. I have seven questions. First question you may get a lot. Where was the Bible before 1611? Right? Where was the Bible before 1611? We contend that the Bible was, the King James Bible was kind of translated and put together from 1604 to 1611. So where was it before 1611? Answer, in the available manuscripts from Antioch. In the available manuscripts from Antioch. Now remember, 95% and higher, I use 95 as a low number, but 95% and higher of extant manuscripts or existing manuscripts have, have been found, are the text found from Antioch. Now, that takes on some different forms. Obviously, it was in the original Greek, whatever the original Greek was that we don't have anymore. We could have found them there. Um, that Antiochian text was found in the old Latin of 150 AD. Not Jerome's Latin Vulgate. Jerome was not a good guy. He's not a good guy, Jerome. But uh, the old Latin also is in the line of Antiochian manuscripts. Uh, the Syrian Peshito of 157 AD is in that line. So you could always find it. But do you hear how hard that is to remember? <laughs> the old Latin, the Peshito. That's why God brought them together in the King James Bible. Uh, and in Job chapter 19, it's actually the answer of a prayer. Job 19, 23, Job said, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. <laughs> and God answered that prayer. And he put them together in a book, which you have in your lap. But they could be found, and uh, it's interesting study. The Bible says of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 2 that he grew and matured in stature and in wisdom and in favor with man, and you see that that word of God seemed to get more and more perfected. There's all these weird parallels between Jesus and the Bible, and I'm not saying, you know, you might be like, that sounds weird, but it's true. It was there, and then God perfected it and brought it together in the Bible you hold in your hand. Could you imagine what Christianity would be if you had to go search all these different languages and manuscripts to find the Word of God? We're too stinking lazy. Nobody would care what the Bible said. Nobody would care what God said. God said, I think they're going to get really lazy in Laodicea. I better put it together in a book, you know. So that's where it was found, all right? It's not like the Word of God didn't exist before 1611. Number two, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Second question, what about the archaic words in the Bible? What about the archaic words in the Bible? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 25, contains a word that is an archaic word. We don't use the word shambles anymore like it's really meant to be used. We might use it in the vernacular, but it's not used the right way. What do we do with words that are no longer in use today? Like, what is the Bible precedent? 
Well, one thing you could do if you weren't so lazy, you just get a dictionary and look it up. But you know, you'd do that with Shakespeare. If you're reading your philosophy class, you'd look it up. But somehow for the Bible, we gotta make it dumbed down so you're not told to turn to anything else. But I'll give you something better. Go to 1 Samuel chapter nine, and let's look at the Bible precedent for handling archaic words. What does the Bible show us to do with archaic words? The Bible is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. So what does the Bible do? And ironically, I could plug this now, I, I learned this from Sam Gipp, from reading one of Sam Gipp's books. And Sam Gipp is going to be speaking in Staten Island uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Uh, he's a good preacher and teacher and defender of the King James Bible. And so if anybody wants to take a trip over there, I'm going to try to go maybe one night. Um, I've heard him preach many times. I've read a lot of his books, and he's a good man of God, a good encouragement to the churches. So I think he's 7 o'clock uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Sam Gipp is speaking in Staten Island. Um, don't go tomorrow. That would be messed up if you went tomorrow. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> that's why I was careful to say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, but 1 Samuel 9, look at verse 9. It says, um, Before time in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spake, Come and let us go to the seer. For he that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer. Then said Saul to the servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went unto the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hill to the city, they found the young maidens going out to draw water and said unto them, is the seer here? Notice the Bible practice for handling archaic words. Number one, leave the word in the text. Seer is an archaic word. They say, we don't use this word anymore. God doesn't get rid of it. Don't add or take away from his text. Leave the word in the text and let the Lord define it. He'll often do it right in the context. You've got a built-in dictionary in your Bible. If you read a few verses before and a few verses after, you'll probably get the context and very, very often the definition. And it's right there in verse 10, 9. He that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer. God gives you the definition of the word in the context. So leave the word alone and let God define it. Well, what about the these and the thous, right? Because, you know, you, how many people have had somebody say, oh, I just can't take the these and the thous. I mean, okay. <laughs> have you heard people speak today? Have you heard them, you know, the language people use today? I need an interpreter for my students sometimes, you know. I'm going to sound really old and crotchety, but, you know, I had to figure out what lit meant, what it meant to riz somebody up. Like, I had to hear all, all this stuff. I mean, you're laughing at me, I know, but all this stuff that we got to hear now, it's like the language they're speaking is, is Swahili to me, right? So we got these and nows from Elizabethan England, right? Um, here's the simple thing to remember. The ones with the T, right? The thee, the thou, the thine, it's singular. It's singular you. Right? It's more precise. The king's English was more precise than our English. Elizabethan English is considered the height of the English language, by the way. That's why Shakespeare is in that time period. Shakespeare was actually suspected to be being part of even King, of king James's court. He was around when you know, the Bible was being translated. Uh, that's the height of the English language. Just walk into a high school, a public high school today, and you realize we're not at the height of the English language, okay? Um, and the ye, and the your, 
and the U is plural U. Right? So the, right? It's one person you're talking to. Ye, it's got a branch, two coming off of it. It's more than one person you're speaking to. All right? Let's go to John 3, 7. I'll just show you. And, and, and you know, by knowing this, you get sometimes some light on some verses. When God uses thee and thine and ye and you, it gives some light. It's more precise than just saying you. In our English language, you say you. I could say, are you ready? I could be talking to everybody. I could be talking to Estella. But in the Elizabethan English, you know, art thou ready? That's your, your singular, you know. Ye are all my class, that's plural, right? So in John 3, 7, Jesus is talking to the individual Nicodemus about the nation of Israel he was supposed to be a leader in. And he says, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Art thou a master in Israel and knowest not these things? He's saying, hey, you Nicodemus, you're a teacher, you're a Pharisee, you're supposed to be proficient in the law. Don't you singular know that your nation is supposed to be born again, that all these people have to get born again? Marvel not that I said unto thee, teacher, ye, all of your people you're supposed to be watching out for, must be born again. It adds a little bit of light there to reprove the individual Nicodemus about the corporate nation. You wouldn't get that in your especially satanic version. All right? Uh, how about Luke 22? And if I, used, if I said that, you know, if I called the ESV the especially satanic version, half the evangelicals you know would lose their stuff. You know, if I dared speak ill of their God Paul Washer or R.C. Sproul or, you know, John Piper and the especially satanic version they all ascribe to most of the time, they'd lose their stuff. Um, uh, Luke 22, I'm sorry, before I get on the thing. Luke 22, here's another instance of where knowing thee and thou actually yields a richer understanding of what Jesus is saying. And the Lord said, Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now, if I make them all you, it's like, okay, I get a little something out of it. But what is he really saying? He's saying, Satan wants to sift all of the disciples, but I'm praying for you, Peter, because you're their leader. And you're supposed to help them and take care of them and strengthen them. So Satan had desired to have you. He didn't just want Peter. He wanted Bartholomew and Thaddeus. He wanted everybody but I'm praying for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren, right? He's after all of you. He's after your kids. He's after your families. He's after all of you. But God's praying for you individually so you could be a covering and a help and a strength to them. So that's about the archaic words. Question number three. Let's go to Psalm chapter three. Question number three. Psalm chapter three. Psalm chapter 3. Third question. 
What about the italicized words in the King James Bible? Oh, my goodness. Oh, heaven help us. Oh, some of the words are italicized. Oh, no. Oh. Right, I, gave you a, I gave you a handout um, or a pamphlet on the italicized words in the King James Bible, which kind of gives a lot more examples of these. So I'm just going to summarize. I, I don't say everything that's in there, but if you want like a more expanded view of that, you could, and we have those available in, the, in, the, in our display on Sundays if you ever want to take one and give one to people. But here's for your notes. Italicized words are there to complete the sense of a translation, right? To complete the sense of the translation. So it makes sense. When you go from language to language, it's not always a word-for-word translation. For example, en français, je puis dire je m'appelle français, je m'appelle Patrick. In other words, in French, I could say je m'appelle Patrick. That means my name is Patrick. But that's not the literal meaning of it. It is, I call myself Patrick. Je, I, m'appelle, call myself Patrick. But that's not what it means. When someone says, je me, uh, uh, comment t'appelles-tu? Oh, je m'appelle Patrick, right? What's your name? My name is Patrick. I call myself Patrick. No, that's not what I say. I say, so when you translate, right, there's a sense to what is being said. Well, imagine the, con- so it's not a word-for-word translation, is what I'm saying. Sometimes you need some, these words to complete the sense. Now, imagine the confusion if there were no italicized words in the following verses. Look at Psalm. We're in Psalm 3, right? Let me get there with you. Watch this. Psalm 3. Uh, We'll look at a few of these, and that pamphlet has a lot more of them. Psalm 3, verse number 8 says, Salvation unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people, Salah. The word belongeth is italicized, but if we take it out, salvation unto the Lord, does the Lord need to be saved? Doesn't make the same sense, right? If you take out the italicized word. How about Psalm 12? Let's look at Psalm 12. Look at verse 5. I'm going to read it without the italicized words. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set in safety puffeth at him. What does that even mean without the italicized words? It doesn't make any sense. How about Psalm 34? How about Psalm 34? Verse number 16. Psalm 34, 16. Psalm 34, 16. Is that what I want? Psalm 34. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. Whom does the Lord deliver out of all their troubles? Right, that's because it's in the italicized words. But if I take the italicized words out, it sounds like he delivers the wicked out of their troubles. That's not true. Sometimes he puts them in trouble to get them right with him. And the best example... If you go to 2 Samuel 21, the best example is in 2 Samuel 21. If you remember one, if there's only one example of the need for italicized words, it's 2 Samuel 21. So if anything you remember from that whole pamphlet, my yammering for a few minutes, you remember 2 Samuel 21, 19. <clears throat> and there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines where Elhanan... The son of Jace, J, that guy, J. Reorigim, that guy, a Bethlehemite, slew Goliath the Gittite, 
the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. I took the italicized words out. Who did, who did Elhanan slay? <laughs> right? It says it slew the brother of Goliath, but if you take the italicized words out, it says he slew Goliath, but I thought David killed Goliath. Now, hold your place there and write the cross-reference down, 1 Chronicles 20. 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5. 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5. 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5. And there was war again with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, slew Lami, the brother of Goliath. The Gittite. They're not italicized in 1 Chronicles 25, which means it was in the Hebrew. So the italics in 2 Samuel clarify the contradiction, right? They complete the sense and clarify the contradiction because the Bible says in 1 Chronicles that he slew the brother of Goliath. So they put the italics in 2 Samuel to complete the sense, clarify the contradiction. Everybody that's got a false Bible, turn to Psalm 23, verse 1. Can I tell you this? All Bible translations do this. They all do it. You can't translate without completing the sense. The King James translators are the only ones who were honest about it and italicized the words to let you know that they added those in. All right? Psalm 23.1. You don't even need to turn there. The Lord is my shepherd. Right? You notice in your King James Bible, the word is, is italicized, right? The Lord is my shepherd. But if you read it, what does it say in the other versions? Somebody, what's it say? The Lord is my what's it say? The Lord is my and we can go on. They all say the Lord is my shepherd. They all put the word is in there. The King James translators were just the honest ones who italicized it. So all translators do this. So when they say, they italicize words. Yeah, we would, they were just honest enough to italicize them, but everybody does that. The Bible says, provide things honest in the sight of all men. The King James translators were honest. They were honest. They say, we are completing the sense here. We're going to italicize the words. But everybody does it. And I want to show you something neat, the, um, how some New Testament writers quote the italicized words from the Old Testament that are not in the originals. Think about that. They're going to be preaching and writing in Greek. They're going to be quoting Hebrew, and they're going to be quoting the italicized words that the King James translators added in, even though it wasn't in the original, which makes you think, like, wow, maybe they were led of the Holy Spirit. Watch this. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. You're going to have to find two places and flip even faster than I ask you to flip. But Deuteronomy 8.3 and Matthew 4.4, 4, okay? Deuteronomy 8.3 and Matthew 4.4. 4. Deuteronomy 8.3. All right. And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. The word, word, is italicized. It wasn't in the original. They added that in to complete the sense. But in Matthew 4, 4, 
when Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, Matthew 4.4 says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Jesus quotes word. That's not in the original. Very interesting, right? Jesus put it there, but it wasn't in the Hebrew. But Jesus quotes it like it was. Does that make sense? Pretty wild. Psalm 16, verse 8. I'll show you just a, There's a lot of examples of these. I'll show you a few examples, though. Psalm 16, 8. Psalm 16, 8. Psalm 16, 8. All right. You there? I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Right? He is italicized. He is. Is italicized. It's not in the original. They added it in to complete the sense. All right? Go to Acts chapter 2. Peter's going to quote the same verse. Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, verse 25. Acts 2, 25. Acts 2, 25. Acts 2, 25, Peter preaching. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Not italicized. Peter Quotes, he is, even though it's not in the original. One more. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. Deuteronomy 25, 4. Deuteronomy 25, 4. Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn, right? Paul, and now, the corn is italicized. Go to 1 Corinthians 9.9. 9. We read this on Thursday. 1 Corinthians 9.9. 9. 1 Corinthians 9.9. 1 Corinthians 9.9. For it is written in the law of Moses, thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Paul quotes the corn that is nowhere in the original. So, a bit tongue-in-cheek, I would say, if the italicized words are good enough for Jesus, and good enough for Peter, and good enough for Paul, they should be good enough for us. Because they had no problem with them. Number four. Isn't something always lost in translation? You know, there's this kind of like twisted penchant to kind of go back to the originals. You know, everybody that if, uh, you know, if you got a, if I flipped open my not inspired version or my nutty idiots version and I turned to the book of Mark, I would find an asterisk at the end that would say that the last 12 verses of Mark, right, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 to 20. So this has, the, this has all that in italics, and it ends the gospel with them trembling and bewildered, fleeing from the tomb. 
What a great way to end the gospel, right? With them afraid and they thinking Jesus is still dead. Because, you know, the last, Dean Bergen wrote a great treatise called The Last Twelve Verses of Mark, in which he kind of destroyed Westcott and Hort and what they were trying to do with the revised version. But, you know, um, isn't something always lost in translation? This thought that the earliest and the best, because all these versions say, well, we're going back to the earliest and the best manuscripts. We get closer to the original language, we're going to get closer to the truth. That may not be true. When man is doing the translating, yes, but not when God is doing the translating. Okay? When God is doing the translating, the translation is always a gain, not a loss. The translation always gets better. It doesn't get worse. And every time God uses the word, like last night at the youth group, some of the kids were playing, uh, what was it called? Telestrations? Right? Is that what it's called? Telestrations? It's like a game of telephone and Pictionary you all married together. And you laugh about how much you mess up the message the longer it gets passed down. Not so with God, because remember, the first thing we talked about, the King James Bible, it hangs on the integrity in God, on the power of God to preserve his word. Not scholars, right? So let's look at every time God uses the word translation. And every time he uses the word translation, it's something better than the original. God's translation is always better than the original. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 9 to 10. All right? 2 Samuel 3, verses 9 to 10. 2 Samuel 3. Hurry with me now. 2 Samuel 3, verses 9 to 10. So do God to Abner and more also except as the Lord has sworn to David, so I do to him to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul to set up the throne of David. So the first time we got translation happen, the kingdom's going from Saul to David. Wasn't that better? <laughs> Wasn't it better when the kingdom went from Saul to David, the wicked, satanic King Saul, to King David, the man after God's own heart? How about Colossians chapter 1? How about number two? Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Colossians 1, 13. These are the only three times translated is in the Bible. And when God's doing the translating, it's always better than the original. Colossians 1, 13. It says, speaking of God, the Father hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Did anything get better when you went from Satan to the Son? Amen. Right? I mean, I think that was an upgrade. How about Hebrews 11, verse 5? Last one. Hebrews 11, verse 5. Hebrews 11, verse 5. Um, By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him before his test translation. He had this testimony that he pleased God. Was anything lost when Enoch went from earth to heaven? I think that was an improvement. So in every instance, God's translation was better than the original. And here's a little nugget for you. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, tribulation saints. Their translation is alluded to in those three times, right? Because there's three resurrections. 
right? Three parts of it anyway. So that's a little nugget. That's not part of the King James study, but those are for the guys that want to have something to sound like they justify their price of admission. All right? All right, number five. Number five. This one gets real controversial, especially among the cult. Can a translation be inspired? Oh, boy. He said it. Uh-oh. You see, the cult of scholarship claims that only originals are inspired. They worship them like there's some mystical vellum that has some kind of fairy dust on it. And somehow God's power to inspire could not extend beyond the original autographs. But if we let the Bible be our final authority, we see that that position, that only the originals are inspired, is unbiblical and absurd. Right? Go to Genesis 42. I'll show you a few examples. Ready? I'm just going to, you could use these examples on somebody and make their head spin around. Genesis 42. Is your translation inspired? 42. This is Joseph, right? Joseph is, 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 is working with Pharaoh, right? He's second in command to Pharaoh, and he's got his brothers there. Good Genesis 42, 18. And Joseph said unto them the third day, This do and live, for I fear God. If ye be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go ye, carry corn for the famine of your houses. But bring there your youngest brother unto me, meaning uh, Benjamin, so shall your words be verified, and ye shall not die. And they did so. And they said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he was besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Did not, Do not sin against the child, and ye would not hear. Therefore, behold, all his blood is, his, also his blood is required. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. Question. What was inspired? Joseph's Egyptian? The interpreter's translation? Or Moses writing it down in Hebrew? What was inspired? Was the original marred by the interpreter? Or Moses' translation messed up? Did the Lord inspire the words Moses penned? Contrary to the cult of scholarship that says only the original could be inspired. But Moses is writing down the scripture. And he's writing down a translation of the original. He's not writing down Egyptian. He's writing down Hebrew. Which one's inspired? You tell me only the originals are inspired. I'm just pointing this out. Do you see how that logic breaks down? It's not consistent. It's self-destructive. Go to Acts chapter 7. I'll show you another one. Acts chapter 7. Acts 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 22. Now, when you read Acts 7, 22, when you read all of Exodus, right, you read Exodus 4 through 14 and that contest between Moses and Pharaoh, right? He's going back and forth and speaking to Pharaoh. What's inspired? Moses' spoken Egyptian, the original, or Moses' written Hebrew in the Old Testament? Acts 7, 22 tells us that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Undoubtedly, Moses spoke to Pharaoh in Egyptian. But Moses wrote the words down in Hebrew. 
which words are inspired. Acts 22, right? Watch this one. Acts 22. I'm just making you think for a second, and then I'll, I'll, I'll give the answer. Acts 22. Acts 22, verse 1 and 2. Acts 22, 1 and 2. This is Paul, Peter, oh, I'm sorry, Peter, Paul, and Mary. That's, this is Paul making his defense, right, being arrested. Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense, which I make unto you. And when they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence, and he saith, We know Paul spoke in Hebrew, but we have no manuscript in Hebrew for this portion of God's word. Luke, the author of Acts, wrote the entire account in Koine Greek. So what's inspired? Paul's Hebrew original or Luke's Greek translation? 2 Timothy 3.16. I'll, I'll, I'll try to give my answer to this, at least how I understand it. 2 Timothy, and, and the intellectuals like to meander in all this murkiness, you know. Second Timothy 3.16, bless you. All, bless you, that's it, you're done. Three is your max. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Present tense, is, not past tense, not was. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's the scripture that's inspired. Not the original. The scripture is inspired. The root of Scripture is script, what was written down. You got the Scripture? If you've got the Scripture, you've got something that's inspired. No matter if it's the original, a translation, or a copy, if you've got what God calls the Scripture, you've got inspiration, because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. See verse 15? And that from a child that was known, the Holy Scriptures, the Lord was not talking about the originals. How could we think that Timothy had the original Hebrew, the original Isaiah, the original Moses? That is nonsense. Timothy wasn't even fully Jewish. They wouldn't have committed that to a half-breed like Timothy. He came from a broken home. His father's a Greek. His mom's Jewish. He's got the Scripture, though. What has he got? He's got copies. He's got translations. He's got what God called the Scripture. If you've got the Scripture... You've got what's inspired. Do you have the scripture? Look at, look at, look at a couple of places here. I'm going to hurry through these. Matthew, go to Matthew 1 really fast and Isaiah 7 really fast. Matthew 1. Well, actually, you go to Matthew 1 and I'll go to Isaiah 7. How about that? That way I could speed this up. You go to Matthew 1 and I'll go to Isaiah 7. I'm going to read Isaiah 7, 14, right around Christmas time, right? Get a little timely here. Make it relevant for everyone. All right? Isaiah 7. I still have not mastered the art of talking and flipping to verses at the same time. I just, I'm like randomly flipping pages over. I'm in like Ecclesiastes. Isaiah 7, 14. All right? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does it say in Matthew 1, 23? Somebody read it big and loud. So it's a little different, right? 
but God's not caring about the originals. That's the, that's the scripture. That's, they're both inspired. That's what God put down. That's what God wrote down. And he does it in other places. He does it, um, I'm just going to give you these for time's sake. Uh, Matthew 3.3 3 and Isaiah 40, verse 3. Talking about John the Baptist. Uh, Matthew 8, 17. And Isaiah 53, verse 4. Talking about the suffering servant. You're going to see that the New Testament writer quotes it a little differently than the Old Testament. And you know what? That's okay. What God wrote down and preserved for you, that's the scripture. I had a kid say, how come, how come the New Testament writers change some of the Old Testament verses and tweak the words? I don't know. Ask God. Maybe he's trying to show you something. But what was written down, the scripture, is given by inspiration of God. And each of those verses, each of these pairs, is a New Testament translation of an Old Testament text. Is the New Testament passage any less inspired? Because it's not the original, but only translated? Of course not. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. If you have God's translation, you have the inspired words of God. So yes, your translation is inspired. If God's the one that did the translating, yes. Psalm 12, 6 and 7, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation even forever. What you have written are the words God wanted you to have. That preserved scripture is inspired. There's no expiration date on God's inspiration. <laughs> inspiration without preservation is useless. If there's an expiration on inspiration without preservation, you don't have the scripture anymore. If you have the scripture, you've got something that's inspired. And listen, I know this gets a little heady, but help yourself out. Don't ever make a bigger deal out of something than God does, like the originals. You never find the apostles worrying about the originals. You don't see Paul saying, you know, Timothy, you've got a good rendering of those scriptures that helped you, helped you as a child. No, he says, you had the scriptures, right? Now, the intellectual wants to get all like, you know, but isn't really the scriptures, you know, what edition of Nestle's, you know, Greek text is it? You know, don't care about those things. When you make more of what God does out of something, you end up in error. God doesn't make a big deal out of it. God lets the originals get burned, thrown in a river, you know, cut up. You know, he didn't, he didn't hold on to the originals because you'd worship them. So don't make a bigger deal out of something than God does. Question number six. Do we need a perfect Bible in every language? I know that's a little controversial. Do we need a perfect Bible in every language? Well, I'm not going to give you my ideas. I'm going to go to Romans 3. I'm just going to say, what is the Bible practice? Like, what do we see in the Bible? Romans chapter 3. And I know I, people may disagree with me on this. That's okay. But this is the way it makes sense in my head. And Romans chapter 3, verse 1. In the Old Testament, right? God gave his word to one people, Israel. In one language, Hebrew. Okay? And apart from some parts of Ezra and Daniel that are written in Aramaic, the Old Testament is largely, almost entirely, Hebrew. 
Romans 3, verse 1 and 2. Unto them were committed the oracles of God. Romans chapter 9, same thought. Romans chapter 9 speaks about Israel again. It says in Romans 9, verse uh, 4, he speaks about the Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. So the precedent God set in the Old Testament was that if you wanted to get God's word, you had to get to the Jew because the Jew had the word of God. In the New Testament, God gave God his words to the church. One people, the church, in one language, Greek, right? And what was the idea? Matthew 20 and 19, Christ commands his disciples to go out and give God's words to the world. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Because the New Testament was given in Greek because that was the predominant language at the time. Got me? So why didn't perfection stop in the Greek and Hebrew? Think about it. Why didn't perfection stop in the Greek and Hebrew? Well, I'll give you a few ideas. Number one, Hebrew and Greek are both ancient languages. People don't speak those languages today. Biblical Hebrew is distinct to the Jewish language, to the Jewish religion today. And the Greek of the New Testament is a dead language. It is not the Greek that is spoken today. Biblical Greek. Also, so they're dead languages. Also, number two, Hebrew and Greek are two of the most difficult languages in the world to learn. People who complain about English, <laughs> they complain about your King James Bible being hard to understand. They want you to learn Greek and Hebrew, which are, take your lifetime to try to understand. So when it came to the entire Bible, God would again, right, choose one language, one language, English. Why? Some reasons why English. English had been developing for centuries, and it was at its pinnacle during the early 1600s, right? So that's, that's why not Greek and Hebrew. Why English? One, at that time, English was at its pinnacle, rich and precise and vast. Number two, English is a far more precise language than Greek or Hebrew. Number three, English was predominant in nations that would be global powers affecting the language of the world. English would be the predominant language in the nations that would be the global powers that would affect the languages of the world. First, England. Right? They used to say the sun never sets on the British Empire. Between the 18th and the 20th centuries, the British Empire was at its biggest in history. 25% of the world's population in 1913 was under the British crown. That's impressive. After England, then America. A world superpower whose influence is international. And God knew English would be 
I'm almost there. The language of the end times, it would be prominent. He knew it would be the English, the language of the end times. It was at its pinnacle in the 1600s. It's more precise. It would be predominant among the nations that would go around the world and probably bring that language and affect the languages of the world. It would be prominent at the end times. As of Ethnologue 2021, more people speak English around the world than any other language. 1.348 billion people, according to this survey, speak English. 978.2 million speak English as a second language. Now, the closest second is Mandarin. 1.1 billion people speak Mandarin, but that's mostly native speakers. English is the language most spoken around the world. All right? Go to Revelation 3.8. So, if English is the prominent language of the end time, God is going to perfect his language into English to send it around the world, to take it to the world. Now, Revelation 3.8 is speaking to the church at Philadelphia, which is the church at the time in church history. When we look at this prophetically, that's when the English King James Bible was brought into existence. That's happening in that period of 1611 from 1500 to 1900 AD is roughly the time period of the church of the Philadelphian church, the church of the open door. And God says to them, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. And God's perfect word in English was a mandate to take it to the world. He says, you guys take it to the world. That happened in that time period when your King James Bible was brought into existence. The King James Bible ushered in the greatest era of missions the church age ever saw. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them, Jesus said. And now, listen, we support and encourage Bible translations into Sabuano in the Philippines. We're behind that. French with Maurice, we're behind that. But we never forget who's the king, who's the authority. Who's the one? I get it. We want to translate it, get the Bible out, but we know who's the king. He's the king. The King James Bible is the king. That's the final authority. And lastly, and very quickly, go to, uh, uh, go to, go to 1 Peter chapter, uh, go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Just get two verses with me. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to finish right here. Question number seven. I'll be very quick with this. I want to get out of here. I know. We've got stuff going on today. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. There is no 7. 2 Timothy chapter 2. What should you do with the truth about the King James Bible? I've just puffed you up for the last two months. Well, 2 Timothy 2.25 says, The servant of the Lord in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves if God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We should never become arrogant with people about this issue. We should never become rude or nasty with people about this issue. I may sit here among friends and kind of kick these Bibles across the room, but if somebody walks in tomorrow with an NIV, I'll shake their hand, help them find the verse, and have them, let them have a seat and enjoy the message and trust it to God. 
I'm never going to be rude and arrogant with somebody. Now, if somebody gets rude and arrogant with me and goes after my mama, I might scratch and I might kick and I might try to claw their eyes out, you know. But if somebody's coming, they don't know any better, don't bash them over the head. Souls get saved just like you by Jesus Christ, not the King James Bible, all right? The gospel saves people, not the version of the Bible, all right? And a lot of saints don't even realize it's an issue. You know why? Because Satan is a covert operative. He's done a great job of obscuring the truth. And a lot of you, I look around this room, you've got family members that are saved, and they love God as best they do, and they maybe don't read a King James Bible. Okay. Would I like them to? Yeah. If they give me a chance to talk about it with them, will I? Sure. But am I going to wrestle them to the ground and call them apostate? Because they read a New Living Translation or an especially satanic version? Of course not. Just because I get a little rude and crude up here, please don't do that with people that are not of the same ilk as you. All right? Have some grace. Have some mercy. Don't go around splitting churches. Don't go around starting fights. You can stand for the truth without being smug. Right? Remember Genesis 13 when they're having that little squabble, Lot and Abram? And Abram says, look, man, you, you want to go over here? You go over there. I'll just go over here. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. You know, in Mark chapter 9, uh, there's this guy. I'll go to Mark chapter 9. I'm just going to go to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse number uh, 38. Mark 9, 38. There's this guy casting out devils in Jesus' name, and the disciples are flipping out. They're saying in verse 39, forbid him not. No, no, they're saying, oh, we saw one uh, casting out devils in the name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can speak lightly evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. Not everyone who uses another version hates God. Okay? Just because they're not of our camp doesn't mean they're not trying to preach the gospel, love God, and do good, okay? So get that out of your head. Do I want them to get the right doctrine? Of course, but I'm not going to be able to make them do that. Just, I, just like I can't make someone get saved, I can't make someone accept the written word either. It's got to be faith in their heart. Now, I want to show them. The same parallel of witnessing is true of the King James Bible. You witness to somebody, you have grace, long-suffering, you, you find those open doors, you sprinkle some truth, some salt in there, and you let God do the increase. Same thing with the King James Bible. If you get an open door, run your car right through that open door. Give them as much as they could take, have grace, have mercy, and trust God to give the increase. But they'll have to decide whether they want to submit to the king. But to whom much is given... Much is required. We should be the most faithful, busy, holy, God-loving, soul-searching, sanctified, Christ-like saints around because we have the truth. So shame on any of you if somebody with another version is more sanctified, holy, bold, separated than you are. That is going to be shame on you at the judgment seat of Christ because you had the pure and preserved words of the living God and you got out-Christianed by somebody reading the good news for modern man, which is like toilet paper scripture. And God will bless them because they didn't know any better and God may say, shame on you because you knew better and you're living like a lazy bum. So let it keep you humble, let it keep you gracious, and let it provoke you to love and good works, the fact that you have the truth. Let's pray. Father, we love you.